Hello. Thank you for listening to the sermon from our Revive service. We hope it helps you learn more about God and allows you to grow closer to Him and in your faith. Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, if you would turn with me to the book of Acts as we continue our study here this morning. I do want to start off by correcting from last week, Elijah Blucker called me right afterwards and said that I had messed up um, the island of Cyprus and Crete and all of that. And he said, I think you should go back in there and tell everybody the correction. So Elijah, thank you for listening. I'm really glad that you're on it. So this week, I thought, since I can't do very well, I would bring some books to read to you um, because we enter into a passage that's pretty heavy, and it has some, some, uh, some things that maybe you know um, a lot that, that I needed to grasp a hold of and go to a little bit deeper. Uh, but we see what we see here in Acts 17, verses 16 through 34, is uh, Paul moving to Athens. He's moved to Athens, and we're going to dig in there in just a moment. Before we do that, though, I want to just update you on a couple things, and I want to spend just a moment in prayer. The first, uh, Jeannie Lane called me yesterday, and her brother-in-law, her sister's husband, Carol, and her husband, Roger. Roger had a heart attack yesterday, and so uh, they took him to the hospital, and we're caring for him. So if you would, please pray for Roger and for Carol and then for Jeannie. Um, uh, this week, um, I texted back and forth a little bit with Rhonda, and Rhonda texted me this morning uh, that her mother passed away this morning. She had been in the hospital fighting. Um, her liver was struggling, and so uh, she's home in glory. And so we're thankful for that. But uh, it is a deep uh, hole that uh, will will be there for Rhonda and for her father. And so she asked prayer, um, not only for her, but for her father as well. So if you would, will you pray with me now? Lord, we thank you for our family here at West Hill Lord, I'm sure there's many other needs going on, and I just pray that you would provide your peace, wisdom, uh, Lord, your comfort. Lord, we pray for Roger, that you would continue to heal him, give the doctors and nurses wisdom and guidance as they care for him. Lord, we pray for, um, for Rhonda and for her father this morning. We thank you for uh, Rhonda's mother and, and her love for you, Lord, and uh, we're thankful that now she is in the very presence of her Savior, Jesus, and she's complete and whole. And yet there is a huge void that's left there uh, for her for her dad, for Rhonda's father. Uh, we just pray for your peace. We pray for your comfort for him, and we pray the same for Rhonda. May you just be so real to them, Lord, in this time of need. May you comfort them, and uh, may they feel and sense your presence and your loving arms surrounding them. Thank you again, Lord, for the way you care for us. Thank you for your word. And I pray that as we dig in this morning, that you would help me to be able to share that in a clear, concise way. And I pray that, that the information as we dig in and unpack this, this section in Acts, Lord, would change us. It would help continually transforming our minds and our hearts, helping us to walk closer with our Savior, with Jesus. And so we pray your blessing upon this time. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Acts 17, verses 16 through 34, I want to read it uh, with you. If you would follow along, it'll also be up on the screen as well. And then we'll dig in. Acts 17, verses 16 
through 34. Now, Paul, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to Arab. Error. See, I practiced this all week. I even brought it up. Um, somebody say it for me. Areopagus, see? Thank you. Areopagus. They brought him into the Areopagus saying, May we know what this te- new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this, with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The time of ignorance, uh, the times of ignorance, God overlooked, But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And all of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus. Don Sinius, the Aeropagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Sometimes I wonder why God called me to preach. Um, it's humbling. I can't tell you. I have, so in my Bible, Areopagus is said, along with the, the saying of how I saw it on YouTube, okay, because they, they, of how it's supposed to say. And then I did my own because I don't think like that because, well, I won't get into too deep, but mainly to say I didn't have phonics. They experimented down good old Norton, all right? They didn't give me phonics. They tried something new on our grade school level. And ever since then, uh, my mom says, Aaron, it's not your fault. And uh, so I have a hard time of looking at things and trying to sound them out. 
Um, and so it's just interesting that God would call me to be preacher um, and to preach his word. This morning, this text, you can read it and you can kind of make sense of it. You probably have heard maybe a sermon or something titled this, this story where Paul would go to Mars Hill. All right, And Mars Hill uh, was a place in Greece. And, uh, and actually, I have a couple pictures from my buddy Kevin. Uh, Kevin Burkholder is a pastor over at Goss Memorial in Kenmore. And, uh, and two years ago, he was able to go to Greece and to take a trip. And actually, they'll be going uh, there again. And he said, if there's anybody who wants to go, uh, that uh, this year, he would love for you to join them. And uh, so, but uh, here's Kevin. He's here at the spot where uh, that uh, inscription is the passage that we just read. Uh, Kevin said he tried to read it, but it was just in Greek. And so it was all Greek to him. Um, but that's the, the spot, the landing. And then the next picture, if you would, Alana, is overlooking Greece and from that, that Mars Hill uh, position. And so we'll talk a little bit about uh, what was happening in the culture in that time. Um, I will say that the, the long roof building off to his left is what we're going to talk about a little bit in the place where, where Paul probably was as he went the second, the second part of this text where he would go uh, before the, the council, before the, the community of leaders at that time. And so we'll, we'll get into that, but hopefully that gives you a little bit of picture of what that looked like. And uh, Kevin's much better looking than I am, so I thought you might enjoy seeing that. Let's dig in. Verse 16. So we see that Paul uh, was waiting for them. Who was he waiting for? Uh, he was waiting for Timothy and Silas, who were still in Berea. All right, They would return to Paul in Athens. And so this gets a little bit confusing as we just look at the book of Acts. But actually we have the book of Thessalonians that helps us. And that helps us to understand a little bit more of what was going on with Paul and his companions during this time. Um, so Timothy and Silas would meet up with Paul coming later to Athens. And then 1 Thessalonians 3 verses 1 and 2 says that Paul sent Timothy um, sent, Paul sent Timothy and Silas back to Macedonia. And so what we see is Timothy... And Silas meeting up with Paul in Athens during a period of time. After uh, that little period of time, Paul has a desire to hear about how these churches are doing in Macedonia that he had just had to leave. Remember, he, he was run out of those, of those places for his own life. And so uh, we see that Timothy uh, goes back to Thessalonica, the church there, and he wants to see how things are going. And so then he will come back and meet up with Paul and give a report of, of how things are going in Thessalonica. Silas probably goes uh, to the other churches there um, in Macedonia. And so we see this in Acts 8.15 or 18.5 where it says that Silas and Timothy arrive from Macedonia and they're going to give back another report of what's going on with those churches. So Paul is probably not alone here, all right? Um, at some point, he is going to be left there alone. Um, my, my, my best guess is that Timothy and Silas are here with him as he's walking around. And, uh, and so here he is. He's in Athens. 
Athens, the city, if you do any research, uh, is pretty well known for its uh, scholar, uh, the education aspect uh, of life, of philosophy. Um, but we need to understand that, that roughly 500 years now separate Athens from when it was in its prime. All right, so it's still underneath uh, the Roman rulership at this time, but it's no longer what it used to be. But it still has a great influence upon the culture and upon the region uh, uh, during Paul's time here in roughly 50 AD. And so we see that Paul, as he's in Athens, his spirit is provoked in him. And so we see that his, this word provoked means to be distressed or irritated angry or annoyed. So Paul's he's looking at what's going on around him. He's annoyed. He he there's a there's a part of him that just is not comfortable. He's distressed. And it, and what he saw was this. Paul or Luke tells us what he saw. What did he see? Why was his spirit distressed? Because of the idols. Okay? Because of the idols that were all around him. In verse 17 it says so he reasoned in the synagogue even though this is a, a Greek culture, where does, where does Paul still start? He starts in the synagogues. And so he's going to go and he's going to proclaim the gospel in the synagogues. So he starts there in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. And so um, he goes to the synagogue, but not only is he sharing the gospel there, he is also in the marketplace. And Paul says in some of his other epistles that he, is, he, he has never wanted to be um, a stumbling block or somebody who comes in and just takes from people. And so Paul says in some of his epistles that he was doing tent work. He was in the marketplace. Uh, he was working, and so he did not want to be a burden upon anybody. And so Paul's in the marketplace every day, it says. And what was he doing? He was reasoning with them. He was having a dialogue with them. And this kind of this word reasoning uh, comes from a Greek word that, that helps us to see that it was a style of teaching um, that allowed the audience to ask questions. And so it wasn't probably just uh, um, uh, uh, where Paul stood up and just preached at them. It was a style of teaching, of reasoning, where he was asking for some feedback from them. And so those who happened to be there were the audience at the Agora. And the Agora is the first place where we see Paul at. This is the marketplace. And so the marketplace is where people are. They're selling goods. They're, they're sharing about life. They're sharing what's going on in life and the things of their life in order to be sold. And as he's there, um, he's sharing about Jesus. And so in verse 18, it says, Some of the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And so if you're anything like me, you say, well, who are these people? Well, let me read to you a little bit. First, giving you some background of, of what Greece was like at this time, what Athens looked like. And then I want to read to you a little bit of the Epicureans and what did they believe? And then what do the Stoics believe? And I did go on the web a little bit. And actually, Stoics, there is, there is uh Stoicism is still prevalent today in the kind of belief that is in cultures in the world today. So let me read to you a little bit. Um, I'm reading you from the Chronicles of the Apostles. This is part of the Torah Club. Thanks, Emmy. And uh, I just want to read to you a little bit of insight here. 
So Paul took the, the ins, the, took in the sights, passing through the city, examining the objects of worship, the world's finest architecture decorated Athens. Um, to the northwest of the city rose the Areopagus, or Mars Hill, where according to Greek myth, the gods once gathered to pass judgment on Ares, or Mars, the god of war. Athens, the Athens city council of politicians, orators, philosophers, and judges used to convene on the hill. In Paul's day, they met in the Sto- Stoa Basilios, just off the Agora, but the council still bore the name Areopagus. The world's best sculptures of men and gods filled the streets and the public square. Despite the religious cynicism that tends to characterize academ- um, academia, Athenians remained deeply religious as a matter of pride in their history. The men of Athens worshipped of the Olympian gods since ancient times. They adopted the gods of many other nations and crowded them all into the city. The city contained a forest of statues of gods, demigods, and heroes. According to Pliny, Athens has more than 300 or 3,000 statues. And he quotes, what living mortals could enumerate them all, of what value would be such information? Petronius said that Athens, quote, is so well stocked with deities, you would, will easier meet with a god than with a man. Some sages and devout holy men from the land of Israel would not even walk in the shadow of an idol or carry a coin with an idolatrous image on its face. They refused to pass through the city gates bearing idolatrous images, and they refrained from speaking aloud the names of cities named after pagan gods. Paul was not that rigid. He had lived in Tarsus, Antioch, and other pagan cities. He was no stranger to the Gentile world, and he disdained superstitious paranoia. Nevertheless, the sheer scope of the idolatry in Athens stunned him. Quote, his spirit was being provoked within him as he observed the city full of idols. Now, let's look at what some background of the Epicureans. Epicureans followed the teaching of Epicurus, 300 B.C., an early naturalist who dismissed the supernatural, divine revelation, and divine intervention. They dismissed all of that. The Epicureans were apolitical and philosophical irreligious. They believed that the gods were blissful, marital beings, material beings, that remained dispassionate and uninvolved with human affairs. Epicurus preached a moderate hedonism, teaching that pleasure and the absence of pain constituted life's greatest good. The Epicureans discouraged vice or overindulgence in sensual pleasures, not because such things were wrong, but because these things could lead to later sufferings. Likewise, they recommended obeying civil laws only to avoid the discomfort and the shame of punishment. They did not believe in good and evil or intrinsic virtue. They emphasized simple pleasures and intellectual satisfaction over physical pleasures. Epicureans advocated a thin veneer of pleasantry in pursuit of the path of least resistance. They did not encourage marriage because living with a spouse can destroy peace of mind. Epicureans rejected all forms of life after death and all mysticism. They taught that a man must shed his fear of death and his fear of the gods. 
He need not fear the gods because they are irrelevant to human existence. And he need not fear death because once dead, man ceases to feel. Interesting. Just living high. But not too high. Stoics. Stoicism was the most popular uh, philosophical school of the Roman era. It was named after Stoa Picali. It's a painted portico in Athens where the philosophy first took place. The Stoics taught that man needed to rise above his destruct- destructive passions and emotions in order to bring himself into harmony with the nature order of the universe. They believed in a grand pantheism where the universe itself unites into one God, a divine, universal, ethereal, rational logos. Everyone and everything is part of God. I'll say that again. Everyone and everything is part of God. Unhappiness, human evil, and moral depravity result from man's ignorance of that sublime truth. Perfection and virtue can be obtained by a man who lives in oneness with natural order and recognizes his part in the divine whole. The Stoics especially prize self-control, discipline, as tools towards the end. The Stoic sage sought to free himself from base ambition, passion, and unruly emotions. He prized wisdom, courage, justice, and temperance. Since ignorance was the source of evil, the Stoics were evil were eager to overcome it. So they didn't want to be ignorant. They saw that as a source of evil, which we'll go into when we get to the end of this section. They didn't want to be ignorant. They say all things are part of the universe, belonging to the cosmic divine oneness, and the oneness acts only according to its nature. The soul of human beings are emanations of the eternal logos and therefore neither die nor live after death but continue as threads in the web of the divine universe interesting right i think it's important for us to know when we come across uh, passages in scripture that we don't just quickly uh, gloss over them but that we actually see who's who are those that paul is speaking to and when, they, when the writers uh, specific, specifically tell us different ones, we should know a little bit more about what they believe. So hopefully that helps us as we look at this, because Paul in his arguments or his rationing, as we see, is going to go and actually fly in the face of what these two specifically that we have been told by Luke, what they believe. And so what we see is, as he's teaching them and rationing with them, there is a response in verse 18. And so some of the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers also converse with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Now, when you look at that word, you think babbler like he's like stumbling, he's struggling what to say. This word is actually uh, better probably uh, defined as a seed picker. Uh, So this is a seed picker, and what they're probably saying about Paul is that he's a freeloader who hung around the open markets living off of scraps. Now, don't define that in the physical way. What they're saying is 
Paul is living in this, in this market area, and he's freeloading, meaning he's picking from these different religions, these different teachings, and, and since he's not from there, that he's just freeloading. He's picking a little here, picking a little bit there, and then he's teaching from it. It's not a physical like he's picking up scraps of bread or food. He's picking up scraps of what their, what their religion, what their teachings were. And so they're like, who is this babbler? Who is this seed picker who goes after everybody gleans the field and picks up all the leftover seeds and who's sharing those? Meaning they didn't see him as one who had a lot of authority or that really knew what he was teaching. Then others said this. Um, others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. And then Luke tells us why. Luke says this, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. We come from our mindset as, as North American Western culture mindset, where when you start hearing about Jesus, for the most part, most of us would pick that up. Part of it is our Judeo background. But you got to understand Paul's, Paul's hearers here are, are Greek. They don't know, a lot of them don't know, know or don't want to know about the Jewish customs. And actually, when you look at this whole passage, Paul never uses the Old Testament, nor will he talk about the Jewish ways of life. He knows what his, who his audience is, and as they hear about this, it is different than what the Jews would be teaching at the time. Remember, there's a synagogue here in Athens, so there are Jews living there. And they're, they're, they have the Torah. They have the law. They're teaching that. They're, they're li living that out. Well, this teaching is different than Paul. what Paul is bringing to them. And it's strictly, it's non-Jewish as he's presenting it. And he does that, I think, on purpose because he knows his audience. And so we see in verse 19 that they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. Now, your text may say, like mine does in the ESV, that they took him and brought him. Um, it's hard to understand and to see, really, was this Paul and his own free will, or was this a taking and binding him and making him go? Um, not sure. Either way, Paul is on center stage. And so this is uh, a new teaching for many of them. They want this to be brought. And so uh, Paul was, uh, was coming and while Judaism was a legal religion at this time, um, this was not like the conventional Judaism. And so the question that is hanging in the air here is, was Paul introducing a new God? Part of the background here, again, that helps us to understand is we need to look back to 399 B.C. Remember, this is written roughly when Paul is going to Athens. It's around 50 A.D., and so about 450 years before this, there's something monumental that took place where Paul is going to share about this unknown God. And that is Socrates. Socrates was put on trial here where Paul is going to stand, and he ultimately lost his life. Um, and he, he died uh, denying the gods and introducing new divinities and ultimately, he died. Part of his conviction was that he was corrupting young minds. And so here, Paul is following in the steps in, in a way 
Um, here, 450 years later, he's going to introduce a new God, and thinking back to the last guy who did that, that cost his life. And so here, um, Paul is then led to, um, to the Areopagus in verse 19. And they say this, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians, and now here Dr. Luke gives us a little bit of background of who these people are, what the culture was like, what's going on. It says, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Remember the Stoics. What was part, part of the big belief that they had is ignorance was bad. So you didn't want to be ignorant of anything. So how do you not be ignorant? Well, you keep talking and you keep listening and you keep trying to take in everything that you possibly can. And so here comes Paul on the scene. He presents something new. This is strange to their ears. So they're going to bring him before the Areopagus. It's verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, begins his proclamation. He said this, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription. So Paul had enough time to be able to walk around and to see and to take part of what this culture was. But let me add, I don't think it was difficult to see all of this either. All right, Some of the accounts are that, that they had as I already read, they had little places of, of worship all around their city. It was covered with, with statues, with monuments to different gods. And Paul says, hey, I, I even saw where there's a statue to the unknown gods. Now, there's some other literature that helps us to understand. This probably came from a plague that was happening during Greece, uh, few hundred years before Paul arrived at the scene. And in order to get rid of the plague, uh, one, of their, one of their teachers uh, let out a lot of white and black sheep. They let them out. And as those white and black sheep went out, wherever they laid down, that's where they would build an altar to an unknown God who was causing this, uh, this plague. And they would offer that sheep right there. And so you have all these different statues, all these different places. And so, who, again, if you're thinking there's multiple gods, maybe there's a god that we don't know about, and he's angry with us, and that's why they offered these sheep as a sacrifice to stop this plague. And so Paul sees this altar, and he says, I see with an inscription to the unknown god. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So what Paul's trying to do is to use their context, to use where they're at. Because if he brings in a new, a new God, he, has, he, may, he may die. He may end up being, being convicted and dying. But what he does is he looks at his culture and he says, Okay, here I see that you have a statue, an altar, that, that with the inscription of to the unknown God. What is unknown to you, let me tell you who he is. And so now he's going to go and he's going to start explaining who the God of the heavens are. So in verse 24, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord 
of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man. And so Paul will start off here, this unknown God, I I will proclaim to him, the God who made the heavens and earth and everything in them. So this this is the God who is most powerful because he has made everything that you see and everything in it. Again, when, when you're in a culture that has all these different gods, how do you rank them? Who is most superior? Well, Paul is making the argument that this God is bigger than any of your gods. He has made the heavens and the earth and everything in them. And beyond that, he says this, he does not live in temples made by man. And so while he is Lord of heaven and the earth, he, you cannot contain him. He, he is not containable like you think you can contain these other gods. Nor, and he continues on, verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So God is not here to be served. That Greek word there is to be healed or cured This God isn't here for us to help him out by us. Like he needs something from us. Paul says, no, he gives man life. He gives man breath. And he gives man everything. Now, for us, we can absorb that easier probably than they would absorb that in that culture. For them, many of them, the, 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 the gods were the way that they lived life. That's how they were accustomed. It's how they ran their everyday life. It was about pleasing the gods, about being there. And here, Paul is saying, no, God, God doesn't need you, but God has given you life. God has given you breath. The God of the heavens and the earth, actually, he's given you everything that you have. Verse 26, and he has made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So what Paul says, ultimately, that he has made mankind from one. If you look at the Greek, that singular term, it kind of leaves an open end. And so he has made mankind from one. We know that. We, we have the word of God. We know that that is Adam, that God breathed into him the breath of life, that all mankind came from one man, Adam. And ultimately, God determines the places of mankind. And so, in a way, he's referencing back to Deuteronomy. And, and what happens, what we see in Deuteronomy is there's a spreading, there's an there's a explanation of the Tower of Babel. And at that time, when God would send man out, and it kind of hints at following their own gods. So mankind would be split, have different languages, following their different gods. You can look it up in Deuteronomy. But here, Paul is saying, referencing All of us come from one man, one blood. And it's a good reminder for us, and you've probably heard this. Maybe you've heard this passage preached, and I think Pastor Ed used this in his text as he preached to us. And as we think about mankind today, we come from one blood, all of us. 
And so for us to think that we're superior over another person or another culture or another person who is different skin color, mm -mm, it doesn't work that way. Man and woman, we're made in the image of our God. And Paul is emphasizing that as he is sharing. He says, man, he made, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And again, he explains, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. That should give us a sense of comfort, too, as we look and as we sit here today. God has complete control over mankind. Now, does he allow us to do foolish things at time? The answer is, maybe I put you to sleep. He allows mankind to make foolish mistakes at times, but ultimately it's still part of his perfect will. God, God will move mankind and boundaries as he sees fit and is part of his plan. It says in verse 27 that they should seek God. Why does he do all that? Why has he put man here? And why does he move their boundaries? That they should seek God, their creator, and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. What Paul uses here is a, a picture of someone who is blind, who is going about in the darkness, trying to find their way. And ultimately, I think, in a way, what he's referencing here is what he says in Romans 1, 19 and 20. And I want to read that for you real quick, uh, where, where, where Paul uses the emphasis on mankind without excuse of knowing that there is a God because of natural revelation, God revealing himself. And so Acts 1, 19 and 20 uh, says this, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And actually, Paul talks a little bit about this a little bit earlier uh, in Acts 14, when in Lystra he's going to be stoned to death. What does Paul say to them about this God and not them? They are not the gods, but who is the God of the universe? He says this in verse 17 of chapter 14. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heavens and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. God is the provider. And so here, what he is saying is that from all mankind, all one that God determines their places, that mankind would seek him. He's put that desire in each one of us, in our very soul, that we would believe that there is a true and living God creator. And perhaps, perhaps we may even feel for him and be able to touch him. Then Paul says this. He says, yeah, he is actually not far from each one of us. This is the God of creation is not far from us. Now, again, understanding and realizing that some of the belief that was that God was in everything. Well, we don't believe that God is in everything. God's not in that chair that you're sitting in. All right? But that was their belief. Their belief was maybe God would come and he would come close to us. What Paul is saying is, listen, yes, God is not far from you. He wants to be known, ultimately, is what he's saying. Verse 28 
Paul is going to use part of their uh, their teachings, their philosophies, their philosophers, and and using two different places or passages from their from their writings. And he says this for. Quote, in him we live and move and have our beings. And this is probably from um, Pemadines of Crete and uh, this writing. And then he goes on to say, and even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. What he's trying to do is using the culture at that time and their resources. Because if Paul started speaking from the Old Testament how would these people be receptive? They wouldn't get it. And so what he's trying to do is use some of their own texts to help them to realize, hey, you have been even speaking about this true living God, and you don't even realize it. You don't even know it. Verse 29 says, Being then God's offspring, we, mankind, God making us, coming from one man, we being God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. Now, this is where it becomes troublesome, right? Because now he's going to speak into what all he sees and why he has been so troubled, what we started off with in verse 16. He says, listen, this God who is close to you, who we come from as his children, as he has made us, how can we make him into some image with, with just our imagination, come up with some figure that you would then worship? He says, the times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere and this is where, where it becomes troublesome. This is where, as Paul is speaking and sharing, he's probably okay until he gets to this point. Because this point is what the gospel is all about. And Paul is trying to reason. And there are some, some great theologians who think that Paul was wrong in trying to reason with them. And this shows that you can't reason with the world. I don't, I don't necessarily believe that. I think Paul was doing his very best to try to reach uh, the Athenians with the gospel message. And he tried to use the resources with the knowledge that he had, with what he saw in presenting the gospel. But let me make it very clear here. The same gospel that Paul is going to present here to the people in, in Athens is the same gospel that is presented to you and I today. And here's the problem of the gospel. The gospel requires three things that we see here. The first is repentance. And so Paul speaks and he says this. He says, the time of ignorance, God is overlooked. Okay, there was a period in time where God overlooked and allowed mankind to live and, and, and to be able to, to live in such a way where the natural revelation of, of seeing God, of worshiping God in that natural way was okay. But that time has passed. And because that time has passed, there is something that needs to take place. And he, and he says this, this time of ignorance, God overlooked, but now he commands. This isn't just uh, asking, this is a command. God commands all people everywhere. That doesn't leave anybody out. What we see in Revelation at the end times of those who will worship and, and before the Lamb are people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. 
The gospel message isn't just for a select few. It's no longer just for the Jew. It's for the Jew first and then to the Gentile. He commands that all people everywhere to, here's the key word, repent. Repent. Do you know what repent means? It means to turn from. It was explained to me this way when I was very young, and I got it because uh, it, it's, it's something that I think of when, when I deal with running or with basketball. It's a turning from. So if I'm headed in this direction, and I'm headed on a fast break, and all of a sudden there's a steal, and I've got to turn and go the other way to run down the court, that is much what repentance is. I'm headed in this direction, full of sin, and I understand that I, I, I can't keep living in sin. I've got to turn from it. And I turn from it because of a faith in Jesus and because of my repentance of realizing that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, headed for eternity in hell. The only way to turn from that is by the grace of God, work, His Spirit revealing in my, in my heart that Jesus died on the cross for my sin to take my place. I turn, I repent from my selfish living, and I give my life to Jesus. I repent. I turn in the opposite direction and move. Paul calls them to repentance, to turn from all these vain idols, to worship the one true living, their unknown God as he reveals that to them. He also says this, Verse 31, because he, this God, has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. So God's going to come in judgment. Now, again, the Greek philosophers believed that there were different times the gods would judge them and would bring harm upon them. This, this judgment would be for all mankind of all regions. So it wasn't just restricted to a certain area or boundary or group of people. This was a judge who was going to judge the world in righteousness, not upon whether or not you sacrificed enough or even just did enough, but upon righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. By who? Jesus. Jesus will be the judge. Jesus is not just a teacher. What Paul is saying here is Jesus is not just a good teacher. Jesus will be the judge. He will judge the world. That's quite the difference in teaching. Okay, here's Jesus, a good teacher, a good moral man. We'll, 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 we'll trust that what he has to say helps us and it helps the world. That's different than seeing Jesus as the judge where we stand and we give an account and we have to come with our sin and our guilt and that that, that ultimately, it's only because of Jesus' blood that we can stand declared righteous. And so our righteousness depends upon Jesus and Jesus going on our behalf to the Father, to the God, who will judge the world, all mankind. So Jesus, Paul is saying Jesus is not just a good teacher, this one man, but th by this one man, he will be the judge he will be judged by his righteousness. Then the last part that really gets them is this. 
And as of this, the last part of the verse 31, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So the first was repentance. The second was the fact that, that there is going to be judgment. The third is this, a resurrection. Paul's talking about a resurrection. Remember what I read to you about the Epicureans? There, there's death. When you're done, you're done. The Stoics believe that, that, yeah, while death came, you got absorbed into this amoeba of God because God is everything. And so what Paul is preaching here about a resurrection, this is, this is so wild and out of the world. They couldn't understand this. And what we see is that, that as they, it says, now when they heard, verse 32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. They're like, yeah, right. Like some guy rose from the dead? That doesn't happen. Really? And so what Paul was preaching was looked upon and looked down upon because it called for a change of life, of repentance, of admission of guilt, of turning from self to the God of the heavens and the earth. It required looking at not only Jesus and his teaching, but that, that the God of the universe was going to judge by this man who raised from the dead that there is a resurrection. And this resurrection has given us assurance. Those of us who believe this, he says, this is the assurance. Jesus' resurrection. That's why we get so happy and we celebrate at Easter. Because of Jesus' resurrection. He conquered sin and death. What God said was and is and will always be true. Dr. Luke uh, finishes this. It says, when, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will, fear, we will hear you again about this. So there were some who mocked. There were a few others who wanted to hear more, which kind of fits into the mold of the people at that time. Again, they just wanted to give me more. Tell me more. It wasn't a sense that they wanted to know more so that they could believe. It was a sense of trying to get more knowledge so that they, they, they could be part of this, this understanding of this certain religion of the Stoics. So Paul went out from their midst, verse 33, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were this, uh, this man of the court. He was part of this hearing there on Areopagus. And a woman named Damaris, and then others with them. And so, even in the midst of what seemed like not a very good response, there were some who still trusted and believed in Jesus. So, what's our take what do we take home today as we live our lives today? Let me encourage you that I believe, and this is what I've titled today, I believe that the gospel is enough. Um, I'm not very knowledgeable. I don't have a whole lot of history, historical knowledge. I can't even say names very well. All right? But I believe that the gospel is enough. The gospel is enough for us to share. You don't have to have all this other knowledge. Paul did a great job of presenting what he knew 
and trying to meet in the culture where he lived and where he was visiting. That's good for us to do. But don't lose sight of thinking that you have to have it all figured out. You've got to have all this background. You've got to know what this person really thinks or what they believe. No, the gospel is good enough. I want to read to you a section from from the first letter that Paul wrote to Corinth. Because as Paul is leaving Athens, he will then travel to Corinth. And I can't help but to think, what was Paul's mindset as he leaves Athens doesn't get a whole lot of good response. There are some who accept Jesus, but the response is not many people. It says some. Remember, Luke helps us as Paul goes from city to city to see the accounts of what is very, uh, uh, where there's a lot of fruit and where there's not a lot of fruit. And I think in Athens, there wasn't a whole lot of fruit. And so Paul goes to Corinth, and as God leads him to Corinth, and he starts sharing the gospel in Corinth, I think he shares it differently than the way he did in Athens. Part of it's because his culture is different. But this is what Paul has to say about the way he shares the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 17, he says this, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the Christ is, cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. We just saw that. We just read that. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Greeks. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And being of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not proclaim to you a testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of the power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So this morning, I encourage you. 
I'm not one who has eloquent speech. But we have the hope of the gospel. The cross is folly to the world. To think that a man would come, that God would send his son to this earth and that he would die for us in our place. And not only would he die, but that he would raise again three days later. That's folly to the world. But let me tell you, I believe it's truth. The truth of the gospel is always enough. So as we live it, we live out love. We live out mercy. We live out grace. We live out truth. Knowing that there may be people around us who don't accept that, who don't buy into that, who don't believe in that. That doesn't make it any less the truth, though. The gospel message is the truth. Do you believe it? And is it enough for you? The God of the heavens and the earth has formed you. He has placed you here at this time, at this place. And he desires to use you for his glory. Not for your fame. Not for your wisdom. Not for what you could do for a little piddly God. No, our God is great. And we can't contain him. Nor can we contain the way his message goes abroad. There have been some who believe that we live in a time and a day and age where we're going to see an outpouring of God's love and mercy upon those who need to hear the gospel message. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior. And as you listen this morning, I want to share that Jesus is enough for you to give you life, He gives you breath. And he gives you an eternal relationship with him. What it requires for you to believe. By faith, trusting that Jesus took your place and died for you. Will you give him your life? Surrendering your own ways, turning from your own self and saying, Lord, here I am. That's all I have. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your goodness. Sometimes we make the things in our world too complex. Or we want to do a good job. We want to do our best. And yet your word tells us and it reminds us that there are none of us who are good. No, not one. Our best is not good enough for you. You're that good. You're that perfect. You're that righteous. And yet through your son Jesus, you provided a way. A way to an eternal relationship with you. To repent and turn from our sin, confessing that we are sinners. That I am a sinner in need of a savior. Believing that Jesus set me free from that bondage of sin. I have believed that he set me free to live a life in you, Lord. And that the Spirit of God lives inside of me. 
And so today I have everything that I need in order to live for you. Lord, as Paul proclaimed the gospel message, many mocked him. Lord, I can't help but to think that maybe that's part of our fear. We're fearful that many will mock us. Many mock us because of the way we live or the choices that we make. Lord, may we be reminded that Jesus was rejected by the world. So how do we, as his children, expect not to be rejected also? May we stay strong in you, Lord. Stay close to you. Continuing to proclaim the gospel. But not thinking that we have to have some eloquent speech. Or that we have to know more in order to do it well. I pray that you would help us to live out the gospel. Lord, we owe you our lives. You've changed everything for us. And we thank you for that. Thank you. That we can't boast amongst ourselves, but we can boast in Jesus. Because the gospel message is enough. And it always will be. Help us to live it. We pray this in the name of Jesus.